what a uh, what a week, what a turn of events from a week ago uh, today. Uh, um, it's been it's John. It's been it's been actually not a terrible week this week. No, this is one of those weeks that kind of reaffirms your faith in democracy and in particularly in young people and even in social networks to some degree, although certainly not in ones that um, accuse uh, young activists of um, of just being uh, mindless agitators. But, but otherwise, it's it's been a, a wonderful uh, reaffirming week for what it should be to be an American. Well, I've decided, um, you know, we had a, a couple of different guests lined up this week, but I decided that we should go Inside the hive, uh, I should trademark that the way I say that. Inside the hive. Um, yeah, yeah. We'll keep working on that. Who, who? All right, thanks. Who did you talk to this week, Nick? Uh, I'm talking to uh, uh, our colleague Abigail Tracy. Um, who? Uh, well, you can tell us. You you edit her. Tell you us mean a little bit about Ace High reporter Abigail Tracy. What, what, what did you and Abby talk about? We uh, we're going to talk about um, uh, well she's been writing about Washington and Trump and 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 all these fun things so we're going to get into what's going on with uh, Mueller uh, as I call him because uh, I you know um, uh, we're going to talk about Jared and if he'll end up in jail uh, a story she wrote about this week um, fascinating topic uh, one of uh, my favorites we we're going to talk about. Um, uh, John Kelly, the other John Kelly, and how uh, how this may be the end for him. If there is going to be a blue wave uh, that um, that should be cresting over America, maybe this year. Uh, I'm sorry, in tw- 2018 and 2020. Um, and of course, uh, we're going to start off uh, talking about these incredible kids in Parkland, Florida, and um, how jealous I am of of their uh, oratorical skills and of the fact that they. Uh, are unfazed by alt-right trolls on the internet. So This sounds awesome, Nick. I'm going to get the hell out of here so you can start the pod. All right, sounds good. Abigail Tracy, welcome to Inside the Hive. Thank you for having me, Nick. Are you excited? This is a... You know, this is a, a big moment, I'm sure, in your media career. Huge. Coming My up, debut. Huge. <laughs> All right, let's start with um, uh, the craziest thing... Uh, that happened this week, and there were a lot of crazy things that happened this week. Something that you wrote about uh, for Vanity Fair, um, our uh, crazy person in chief <laughs> wants to arm uh, teachers with uh, with guns to stop school shootings. Am I am I getting that right? That I mean, it sounds like it's something taken straight out of like Central Casting that someone like an intern wrote, but is that correct? <laughs> yes, that is correct. He's definitely pushed back and, you know, taken a few hits at the fake news media saying that that's not what he's saying, but really that's absolutely what he's advocating. It's just with his, you know, characterization that these teachers are adept with weaponry and guns, which is, you know, really doesn't change the whole idea and what he's pushing for, which is for more teachers to be armed on school campuses to act as a deterrent and also, you know, if there were ever to be an attack, you know, sort of be there to essentially shoot a child. So I, I know I'm, I'm not from America. I'm, I was born in England and we, we do things differently over there in Europe. Um, but am I crazy to think that this is absolutely batshit fucking crazy of an idea? 
No, <laughs> not not in my opinion by any means. And I'm from Minnesota, which is obviously, you know, a lot of hunting. So many relatives and friends that I grew up with grew up hunting and everything. But it's a very different idea. And there's also this, just this concept that having more guns on a school campus is going to make it safer. I don't care how good you are. Um, with a weapon, at the end of the day, what this means is to have teachers, in the event of a school shooting, firing weapons around schools. Like, that is what it boils down to. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't talk about prevention or trying to help these students before they reach this point where they come to school armed um, and gun down their classmates. It's really just introducing more guns into a school. Like, at the end of the day, that is what Donald Trump has been advocating for. So... Uh- uh, you cover, you know, the White House and Trump and um, uh, Mueller and uh, who I always want to say Bueller, Mueller. <laughs> um, uh, and all these wonderful characters. The people around Trump, you know, Gary Cohn, uh, um, I don't know to the extent John Kelly, but maybe Ivanka. Uh, I'm not really sure how much sway she has, but like, aren't the people around him saying, hey, hey, buddy, this is probably not a good idea to put this forward as a as a, as a solution? I think it's kind of, it's kind of hard to say. I think, you know, that list, you know, Ivanka and Gary Cohn, that they obviously have, you know, they're Democrats, to, you know, prior to the Trump administration. So you would believe that their views kind of fall um, closer to the gun control line and, you know, a traditional left view on it. So, but how much they're influencing him and how much they're talking to him is really hard to say because I do think that Donald Trump, since he's been in office, you you have these forces around him, whether it's Cohn, Jared, or Ivanka, who were sort of, you know, painted as these measured voices that were going to help change his mind. But I think at the end of the day, he views things very much he views political issues as cultural issues. And I think you look at something like gun control, and to him, he sees it as very black and white. You know, NRA, uh, you know, pro-Second Amendment, and just kind of approaches it from that lens and not really... He's never been one to, you know, dig into minutia or nuance. And I think gun control in particular is one of those areas where there's so much nuance and there's so much minutia that really needs to be discussed, especially at a legislative level. Okay, so when I think of Donald Trump, I think of someone who um, who doesn't actually believe in anything except Donald Trump. And, right. and an example is in you know 1988 when he first started talking about running for president. He was going to run as a Republican. Uh, when he talked to Larry King, I believe it was 96, he was going to run in the Reform Party. In 2000, <laughs> it was it was going to be a Democratic ticket. You know, we came back around to Republican uh, <clears throat> uh, for for this term. He, he's not someone who, you know, who who seems to believe in anything. Does he believe in the Second Amendment and and um, and the rights for the NRA and uh, and so on? Or is this just kind of a money thing that, oh, well, if I support the NRA, they'll continue to support me? It's, it's absolutely sort of a where the wind is blowing thing. I think in one of his, um, one of his books, he actually came out and was like, I'm pro, uh, you know, pro universal background checks and pro, uh, 
assault weapons bans. And then obviously during the presidential campaign, he kind of like disowned those comments. So it's like even on this issue, you've really seen him flip flop over the years just based on, you know, where the party is and where the wind is blowing. And I think when it comes down to the NRA, I actually had a conversation with Chris Murphy, um, the senator from Connecticut who was elected shortly after Sandy Hook. And he made a really interesting point. He said that, you know, when it comes to the NRA, it's not necessarily a only about the money and about the money that they're pouring into politics, but also what the endorsement from the NRA says about your conservative credentials. So this idea that, you know, if you don't, if you're a Republican and you don't have the endorsement of the NRA, you're not a true conservative. So this idea that there are all these other kind of intangible conservative credentials that come along with an endorsement from the NRA, which I thought was like a really interesting point. Like it's become so much more than a gun lobby, but sort of like a stamp of conservatism and, you know, the Republican Party in a way that's really damaging and doesn't allow for, like, debate on these issues. And I think Donald Trump, for what it's worth, like, gets that. You know, I think he very much understands that that and the backing of the NRA is huge for his political career and kind of where he stands with the party. So one of the things that um, uh, that we've seen happen in just a single week since the Parkland shooting has been a uh, a response that I don't think I've ever seen in mm-hmm. the history of of all of these these gun issues in America. Um, uh, you know, there are mass shootings every week in schools um, where a couple or few people are killed. Um, there are, of course, these big ones where there are dozens. Um, and the response has kind of has feels to me like it's a turning point. Um, mm-hmm. It feels like there's this never again movement is 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 not going to go away. Um, and even today, you know, as you and I sit here talking, there's now a new hashtag that is coming up in response to this, where teachers all over the country um, are sharing a, a hashtag called "Arm Me With," and they list a bunch of things they want, like you know, better school sizes yeah. and mm-hmm. and um, uh, uh, pencils and pens and weird things like that uh, for our classrooms, not guns. Um, is this, do you think that this is a turning point? I mean, is this a, from the reporting you've been doing, the people you've been speaking to, um, you know, I always thought that Sandy Hook would have been and was so dismayed that it was not, but, but what's different about this? Well, I think, especially in this climate, the really interesting thing is that you see this group of students who are incredibly well-spoken and just have been, um, incredible to watch just the bravery and everything that they've been saying and that they've been doing. And I think the interesting thing about them is, yeah, Sandy Hook should have absolutely been a turning point and an inflection point. But, you know, those children were very young. And I think what's really interesting is here you have 17, 18, you know, even like 15 and 16 year olds who are coming out and who are talking about this traumatic experience. And they're sort of you know, beyond attacking. Like, Donald Trump can't attack them or, like, try to call into question their credibility. Of course, people on the right have, like, tried to say that they're crisis actors and things of this nature, but I think their message has sort of been able to cut through because of the tragically unique experiences that they've gone through, but also the fact that at the end of the day, they're children and they're saying, protect us and help us. And I think that's a very different message that, to a degree, is, like, removed from politics. And so one of the things that has happened that I've been really impressed with, I mean, first of all, these kids are so fucking eloquent. It's ridiculous. I mean, it's like I watched them. (laughs) 
up I've there. I've never on been these, that on, great. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I've, I've been public speaking for two decades and couldn't pull off what they, they do ever. I mean, they, there's no ums or ars or um, they don't even look at notes half the time. They're just, they're, I mean, it's incredible. But it, it seems like this is, a, this is a generation, and our colleague Maya wrote about this this week. Mm-hmm. Um, these are, part of it is the fact that these, these kids, you know, Generation X grew up um, as the internet was growing up. These kids have grown up on it. Like, they mm-hmm. are full-fledged social media gurus. They, uh, they understand trolling and how to respond to, you know, uh, to the right. And it, I mean, they're, they're pretty brilliant at it. Like there was, um, totally. uh, there was the, uh, there was, uh, one of them was being interviewed, uh, on TV and then afterwards tweeted, uh, to get out ahead of the fact that she may have looked like a, uh, she was upset. She, she, uh, she tweeted, Oh, I, you know, there was a glare of sun in my eyes. So I had a resting bitch face on, uh, you know, smiley face, and and there was the there was David Hogg, the uh, the kid that they're all confusing, con- confusing. Uh, they're all accusing the right wing right. conservatives are confu- accusing of being um, not from that school, and the and of course they came back instantly and showed like how it was complete bullshit, and here here is why he is. Is has has the right met its match with these kids? I think I think in an interesting way, yes, and but beyond even the right, I think Donald Trump has specifically met his match in these kids because, you know, you look over the last two years and, you know, his kind of ascension to the presidency and social media is really why he got there. And now you have these kids who are better at it than him and are better at these messages and are better at sort of embracing all different platforms to send a cohesive message. And I think that's been like the really interesting thing is sort of across all these students and all these kids who are speaking out, it's just been so cohesive and eloquent, you know, from start to finish. And it's across all platforms, Facebook, Twitter, you know, cable news, and they speak in sound bites. They can, you know, send a message in tweets. And I think, you know, Donald Trump has sort of met his match and everybody, you know, kind of in the party is seeing these really powerful messages coming out of these teens, but powerful messages that are easy to absorb because they understand how to do it. And I also think one really important thing, kind of looking at these kids and, you know, their ability to kind of talk and speak out on this issue is they've all grown up doing, you know, drills in their classroom for active shooting drills. Like even I remember those and I graduated, you Wait, know, Wait, you did active shooter you did drills. active shooter drills? So what were yeah. they like? It would be so in they started in middle school, I think I remember the first one, because um, it was, you know, after Columbine uh, that we would do that. But so what they would, it would be the school shut down. It would sort of be similar to a tornado drill or, um, you know, something of that nature. But we would be in our classroom. You lock the door. You turn off all the lights in a lot of cases, depending on sort of like the desk layout. Because I specifically remember in my high school English class, we had big round tables. And what they would have us do during these shooting drills is you would flip the tables. So they kind of acted as a shield or a barrier. And then kids, like you'd have to sit on the floor behind these tables. My English teacher would stand by the door. He had like a golf club in his classroom and he would stand at the door. All the lights would be off. The door would be locked and you'd sort of have to sit in silence for, you know, a varied length of time. Sometimes it would be a few minutes. Sometimes they would go longer. But basically, yeah, 
you know, you would have these drills, you'd flip all the tables, and you would sit there pretending as though one of your students or, you know, an intruder was shooting at the school. And that was, you know, I have those memories from middle school, probably like, I want to say probably seventh or eighth grade, I started having those. And but it you look at terrifying. these kids. It was. And I think, you know, just the idea of it and thinking about it and, you know, in a post-Columbine era, of course, like, that's necessary. But I think these kids in particular have also take, like, take the experiences I went through and sort of those mass shooting images that I saw and completely amplify it and blow it up on this very different scale. Because since I was, you know, taking part in these drills – Think about how many shootings have occurred just over the last five years, the last, like, six years, you know? So I can't even imagine for these kids, and I'm sure they're more frequent now. I'm sure, you know, they're more kind of detailed or severe sort of in the way that these schools are approaching them. So I completely understand that these are the kids and these are the people who are sort of, like, sending sending this message. Like, Donald Trump never had to do active shooter drills, you know? Donald Trump never had to do anything. So exactly. let's just, uh, you know, <clears throat> I mean, I think that, <laughs> you know, the, the saddest part about this is that the, the, the people that are, you know, making the decisions are not people who have ever been through anything like this. Um, and, uh, you know, that's just, it's so apparent. I mean, I, the CNN town hall, just watching that uh, and the pain that these parents and these kids are going through and the response from... Someone like Marco Rubio or Dana mm-hmm. Loish. How do you say her name? Loish? 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 Loish, I, I'm Loish. Loish, I think. I only like, ever see it really written. <laughs> um, it's just, it's, um, it's, it's, uh, it's so apparent that they, they don't, they don't get it uh, from a, you know, they, I don't know, maybe they get it from a kind of, a, from a, a, just a written perspective, but they mm-hmm. don't understand it from an actual emotional perspective. Um, so, okay, so let's just say that, let's just go back to Trump for a second. So let's yeah. just say that hypothetically Trump actually wanted to really pull this off to like arm school teachers. Let's just pretend mm-hmm. that there were actually school teachers that were interested in doing this uh, because I can't think of a single one that I have ever met in my entire life who would want to carry a gun. Um, uh, maybe like some old history teacher who retired <laughs> years ago, who was a weirdo. But, um, you know, most teachers, you know, factually are liberal based on what it is that they do for a living. Mm-hmm. Um, how would he actually do it? Would would he have to go through, is this a state thing? Is it Congress? Do they, does he just kind of, does, wouldn't the teachers unions push back? Like, how would it even work? So my guess, um, my guess is that it would actually end up being pushed back to the states and become a states' rights issue. So kind of something similar to what you've seen um, on college campuses and sort of, you know, you know how there's been a push um, to allow guns on college campuses in certain states. So where public universities, people can conceal and carry on campus. So my guess is that, you know, you look at something like this and you look at just the sheer difficulty and, you know, mandating but also kind of setting setting this up where you have concealed teachers with concealed carry permits on um, high school, middle school, elementary school campuses is just mind-boggling to me. But I think you look at sort of the university model, and my guess is it would be something very similar, where it would be pushed to them, it would become a state's right, it, rights issue, which also, of course, uh, you know, kind of works with um, – Republican ideals. Uh, Mm. So I think that that would really be the path it would go down. But also, you look at something like that, and 
you kind of wonder what that would look like, especially, you know, in in states where it's a red state legislature versus a blue state legislature or, you know, a Republican governor versus a Democratic governor. And also, you know, in certain states that traditionally have more guns and or looser gun control laws and things of that nature, it just gets really messy really fast. And you wonder, you know, even if this was deployed like nationwide or people talked about it and it was pushed to the states, I have no idea what that could even look like, especially based on the variance like across state lines. All right. <clears throat> We're going to try to move move into uh, happier happier territory <laughs> yeah. here. Um, uh, I don't actually know if any, any right-wing Republicans listen to this show, but if they do, uh, uh, I'd love to hear their thoughts on this on Twitter or something like that. But, but it, it, correct me if I'm wrong here. So if you look at 2016, Trump won Florida by 119,770 votes, right? Mm -hmm. So this year alone, I was looking at the, um, uh, the Florida statistics and, and, uh, uh, of graduating students and so on and so forth. So this year alone in Florida, um, there will be 200,000, give or take students that will be eligible to graduate, uh, about seven or 8,000 will drop out and a few of them will have to do summer school. Um, I'm sure some of the kids at, at, uh, at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas will end up being, uh, you know, in that situation, given that they're going to be out protesting and trying to save the world. Um, <laughs> I, th I think they should get just de facto degrees. Uh, I think we should just kind of say, here you go. You've graduated early. Um, but okay. So do you think that um, with 200,000 students graduating this year alone, uh, 200,000 next year and so on and so forth, uh, and Trump only winning by just over just under 120,000 votes, do you think that this this event and the response by lawmakers, the pathetic response by lawmakers where they wouldn't even the Florida legislature wouldn't even vote to have a discussion about AR15s this week even though they wanted to have uh, they decided that porn is unhealthy. Um, mm -hmm. uh, do, do you think that this could be the thing that tips Florida blue? I guess that's, it, it's a very good question. And I think absolutely once you sort of see this group of kids and kids grow up um, who have grown up, you know, participating in these active shooter drills, I do sort of wonder uh, what the gun control debate will look like when they become a voting age. But I think the really interesting thing about Florida, and you kind of saw um, – if you watched the CNN town hall last night, Senator Bill Nelson called this out, uh, just the number of gun manufacturers that are currently in Florida and sort of the incentives that uh, the state has offered them to come there. And he took a few – so uh, Senator Bill Nelson, Democrat, took a few shots at uh, – the governor of Florida, Rick Scott, uh, over this issue and just, you know, kind of called out there's so many gun interests in the state, which I think sort of, you know, bleeds into this idea of why the state legislature there voted the way that they did. But I think what we'll sort of see over time and I think across the country you'll actually see this is like the gun control debate become a much more state and local issue rather than a national issue, especially if you have these kids who are voting in local elections and kind of voting out some of these Republicans who, you know, I think <laughs> I think if you are a student at Stoneman uh, High School that you're going to look at that and remember these lo legislators that voted against an assault weapons ban, well, even just voted against considering it. Um, and you're going to 
probably move to to vote some of those people out. So I think we'll see a change in terms of that makeup. In terms of flipping it blue more broadly, I guess, um, yeah, I absolutely think this will be a factor. But I do think that, you know, the other thing to consider is sort of the jobs and uh, things that are kind of concentrated in, in this gun manufacturing business that is based in Florida, which is kind of a troubling thing to think about. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Hey, John, I want to take a little break uh, from talking to Abby uh, to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Casper. Um, I heard a little rumor that you actually have a Casper mattress. Can you tell me what you think of it? Nick, you heard correct. I love my Casper King mattress. Jack Kelly, former uh, cameo guest on Inside the Hive, loves his Casper mattress. Jack's little brother, Kelly, to be determined, who comes along in... May will love his Casper mattress one day, too. It, it is the most delightful part of my day, sinking down to my mattress every night as I prepare to go to sleep. And I, I really mean it. I love Casper. And so you, you order it online, is that right? And, yeah, you and order it online, and it's actually it's kind of crazy, because even for a mattress as large as ours, it comes shrink-wrapped. So it's in a very easy... Uh, easy to open box, a very very small box, uh, very easy to move around your apartment if you need to store it. And if you live in a house like we do, it's um, it's even easier. And it is just literally the most dreamlike sleep imaginable. So I, um, uh, I, I've been looking for a new mattress, and, and when I was very excited when I found out there that Casper was going to sponsor the, the show this week. And um, I went online, and I looked... Uh, you know, some of the reviews, because that's how I decide everything in my life. And what I was really shocked is there's like 20,000 reviews on on uh, Casper and Amazon and Google, and they're all like glowing five-star reviews. People must really love this thing. If you don't like Casper, you're literally not a human being. So, Nick, <laughs> you, you know, get with the program, homie. So they have, um, correct me if I'm wrong here, but they have hassle-free returns if you're not completely satisfied, but by the sound no of things. No hassles anywhere. Hassle-free. No totally hassles hassle anywhere. Free. Uh, free shipping, uh, deliver it right to your doorstep in one of those small packages. Um, they offer a couple of different kinds of mattresses. Um, so I'm actually going to go and try it. Um, you know, the, they have a, is, if, if I'm correct here, they have a 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial guarantee. Is that right? You only need one night, though. It's awesome. So uh, one of the things that they are doing um, is that they are offering uh, Hive listeners uh, $50 towards select mattresses. So all you have to do is do exactly what I'm doing right now, which is to, I'm typing this in, casper.com slash Hive. That's C-A-S-P-E-R dot com slash Hive and use the code Hive at checkout and you get $50 off select mattresses. Nick, the best day of your life is ahead of you. Oh, the best night of my life. Best night, excuse me. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I biffed that. Shoot. So, um, <clears throat> just a few more, a few more things on on um, on the, the the gun issue, and 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 then I, w- I want to talk about Mueller, Mueller, mm-hmm. Mueller. <laughs> um, uh, the um, uh, last night during the, uh, um, or for people who are, I guess, listening on Friday this week during the the um, uh, the CNN uh, town hall, which was riveting by all accounts. Um, Absolutely. Uh, Dana Loish, Loish, whatever we want, we'll call her Dana Dana Loish for now to make sure see if we get it right. She, NRA um, Dana. <laughs> she yeah NRA Dana. There you go. <laughs> uh, NRA Dana, uh, who used to be a mommy <laughs> blogger. Um, 
uh, used a defense that you know one of the moms who had been who had, whose son had been killed um, uh, had said that um, that their child had been killed that week, and that you know that the whole the whole point of America is life, liberty, and justice, and that, that and that that every life should be treated equal, and um, and why is it that uh, that owning a gun is more important than than her kid's life? And and the thing that she said, which which is an incredibly valid point in my eyes, um, is that um, the uh, when the Second Amendment was was written into into law, um, that um, there were muskets. Uh, that was the gun of the day. Um, and a musket, uh, I should point out, could shoot about two to five rounds a minute. Uh, five right. if you were a really good musket shooter. Two if you were just a normal one. Um, <laughs> so, so NRA Dana responds with with this this complete and utter nonsense around the puckle gun. Uh, and she said that the puckle gun had been around for seventy five years since then. So I did a little research, as everyone did. The puckle gun apparently could shoot nine rounds per minute, whereas the um, uh, an AR-15 with a bump stock can shoot 600. Um, does, does, when the NRA responds to these, and there's a, a point to this whole thing, is when, when the NRA responds to these things, this is clearly a talking point from them, are, are they, do they believe these arguments that they're making? Um, or is this just a, like, oh, this will shut someone up who doesn't know anything about a puckle gun uh, for, for, until I get out of this conversation and, and then they can debate it online later? It, wh- what is the 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 thought process behind this, because they cannot truly believe that that is an uh, accurate portrayal of of what existed when the Second Amendment was written into law. So I think it all, I don't believe that, you know, they are just like, yes, this talking point proves proves me right and that everything I do is great. But I think, you know, the thing people forget is that the NRA is a lobbying group that represents gun manufacturers. So their entire purpose is to help gun manufacturers sell more guns and sell more ammunition. And that's that's their job. That's their whole purpose. So I think no matter what, like what they want is they want, you know, more higher gun sales. They want higher ammunition sales. They just want this to happen. So I think, you know, whatever however they can achieve that, whether that's, you know, talking about some gun that nobody really knows about and, you know, that is kind of nebulous to the conversation that is happening currently in America, I think it doesn't matter because ultimately their objective is to sell more guns in America. And, you know, if that looks like arming more teachers in schools, there, they achieved their mission. It's really interesting because, you you know, I've been reading about this stuff and even writing about it all week and constantly watching the news and, and seeing these town halls and so on. And there was never a moment that I um, thought about it from that perspective. And it, it, I think that what they do so well is they make it seem like they're there to protect the people. Mm-hmm. And really, they're there to protect the gun makers. Um, uh, so, and the, and which leads me to my next question. As I've been watching this all unfold, it's been, it's been you know, students in South Florida um, and other areas of Florida that are coming out and saying you know, we've had enough, never again. Um, and and then it's essentially a bunch of liberals on the East and West Coast on, on social media mm-hmm. that are backing them up. Um, and then a few celebrities, you know, Oprah and people like that that are donating money. But I haven't really heard anything from any of the Democrats out there, barring the ones that were at the town hall, uh, 
Um, I, I, I haven't heard, you know, a, a big moving message from, from anyone that wants to be president in 2020 or something like that. Is there a reason behind that? Or is it just that their voices have not been loud enough during this debate? I think, so the interesting, I actually had a conversation yesterday with a Democratic uh, Senate aide. Um, and he made an interesting point. So he kind of talked about this idea that, you know, gun control in the gun debate makes a really great secondary issue. You look at the polling numbers, you look at the recent um, poll that said, you know, 97% of Americans, which is, you know, within the margin of error of 100% of Americans support universal background checks and strengthening um, kind of those, those safeguards. But the thing is, and this kind of comes back again to like the issue that Democrats have in terms of, you know, sending a clear message and sort of circling the wagons is this idea that gun control makes a great secondary issue because it has all this support. But because of all the nuance within the debate, you know, whether it's about the assault rifles ban and, you know, what that entails or, you know, background checks and loopholes and things of that nature, it can get very muddled very quickly. And I think, you know, unfortunately for the Democrats who really want better gun control laws and to strengthen them, relative to the Republican message on this, which is the Second Amendment, the Second Amendment, they're going to take away your guns, it is very difficult to sort of fight back against that very clear message on the right with sort of the nuance that presents itself on the left. So it was... Because I talked to him, I was like, so, you know, what kind of traction is this getting? Do you think that there will be actual reforms? Because here I am listening to these high school students completely moved, and I'm like, yep, this is it, man. Like, they're going to tighten up those laws now. But he just kind of talked about this idea from just the difficulty around gun control from a sheer messaging standpoint on the national level, which, of course, is not a good excuse when students are getting gunned down, and that's not what he was saying, nor is that, you know, what I'm saying. But just this idea that it's much harder to articulate on the left than it is on the right when all they have to do is bang on their chests and say Second Amendment. And I think that's something that I hadn't really thought about too much, just sort of the messaging no, around it. Um, uh, okay, last question on this topic. You said earlier that you uh, you come from a family uh, uh, of gun owners. Um, have you have you spoken to them about about all the stuff and their viewpoints on Trump wanting to arm teachers with with uh, bazookas and tanks in schools to protect students? Or uh, what what are their thoughts on the whole thing? Oh, my family would absolutely think uh, think that's ridiculous by and large because I think the. My immediate family, we don't have, uh, we have a gun up at our cabin, but that's legitimately for kind of bears or things of that nature. It's northern Minnesota. There are genuine bears all around. Um, but so, but kind of more broadly, my extended family would absolutely think that's ridiculous. And here are people who hunt. Here are people who have grown up with guns and who are aware of, you know, sort of the power that they have, but that are very much of the mindset that common sense gun control laws make sense and that, you know, they have guns for hunting and they don't need an AR-15. So just sort of this, this idea that they're not, you know, you can be a gun owner and still support, uh, support common sense gun control laws. And I think that's one thing that's sort of been muddled. And again, back to this messaging idea, it's like the way it's painted by the NRA is it's one or the other. And that's not the case. And especially coming from a state like Minnesota, where so many people hunt, uh, 
I think to me that that difference is very clear, but I think in terms, you take a step back and you hear the messaging coming from the right, and they act as though that's not the case. That, you know, the only people pushing for stronger gun control laws are people who don't own guns, have no desire to own guns, don't hunt, you know, and, you know, want to shit on the Constitution. Um, <clears throat> all right, um, let's move on to Mueller, <laughs> Mueller, Mueller. Um, so uh, it's been a busy week. Um, as you and I are actually talking right now, there was uh, just a news alert that um, Mueller is f- filing new charges against Paul Manafort. Um, there is, you know, there are stories that um, Mueller's taking a closer look at Jared, a story that you wrote for Vanity Fair, mm-hmm. um, uh, that there are more shoes about to drop. Um, uh, can you give us kind of a lay of the land of what's going on with Mueller and the investigation, uh, the Russian investigation, and um, and if uh, Jared is going to end up um, in all orange behind bars one day? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. So, so first off, you know, you look at the new charges against Paul Manafort. Um, that really kind of stems from this idea that Rick Gates, who was his deputy and longtime deputy on the Trump campaign and longtime business partner for for quite quite a while. Uh, is cooperating with Mueller. So the idea that there were reports that said he had his queen for a day interview, which is essentially, you know, you talk to prosecutors and you tell them all the criminal wrongdoing that you're aware of. Um, But so what that does is, you know, they get more information, but it helps him, you know, then go on to secure his plea deal and kind of give them a sense of what they're going to get in exchange for cutting him some slack legally. But so when you look at that, that sort of, it makes sense that, since those reports have come out, that Paul Manafort is now facing fresh charges, which were likely given to Mueller's team from from Rick Gates, uh, based off so you is, know this information. It, sorry to interrupt for one second. But oh yeah, is, no is, is 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 Manafort going to go to jail? Like, what what what's going to happen? Is this just kind of a, a a you know astounding of a you know someone beating their chest or and saying, hey, I can put charges against you, or or is he like is he really going to end up in big trouble? Oh, he can absolutely end up in, in big trouble for the, the charges that he's facing. These aren't kind of fake charges or anything that's kind of, you know, I think I think sometimes, especially throughout this, uh, as these Russian investigations have been going on, you sort of hear law professors who are maybe on television and on a cable news show who are sort of describing these charges that sort of sound made up and are kind of in theory that have never really been prosecuted. But the charges that Paul Manafort faces in terms of money laundering and fraud are very real charges, and they're real charges that, you know, are prosecuted all the time. So he's facing incredibly tangible <laughs> risks and threats just based on based on kind of what Mueller has against him uh, from from what we know of, of course. Um, okay, so so where is the investigation going now, and um, you know how does this how does this land on um, our good young friend from New York who <laughs> has one of the strangest family histories oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, ever, uh, Mr. Jared Kushner? How how does this where is this going with him? Well, so that's kind of an interesting thing. So we've seen reports um, lately that sources are saying Mueller's looking into conversations that Kushner had during the transition and over the course of 2015 and 2016 about securing um, financing for 60, uh, 666th Fifth Avenue, I believe, um, in New York, which was you know, he, his family, when his father was in prison for, again, one of the most bizarre kind of series of crimes, uh, when his father was in prison, 
Jared Kushner was sort of the point person on this real estate deal that was a largely uh, debt deal. Um, and since the building, you know, it's losing money. The there, Kushner Companies is in complete financial trouble because of as a result of Wonder Boy's deal that he struck when his father was in prison. So what Mueller is interested in is the conversations that Jared Kushner was having with foreign investors, um, Qatar uh, and Russian or Chinese investors specifically is, so he's kind of reportedly digging into those conversations that Kushner had to kind of get money to sort of, you know, keep his family um, business afloat as a result, you know, to fix this deal that he made. um, And is really, you know, not good. (laughs) Uh, So you have that going on. But then also, you know, beyond that, you have Jared Kushner as a key figure in a lot of these, um, these moments that Mueller's investigating, whether they're part of the obstruction of justice part of the probe or, you know, the more uh, the focus on Russian collusion. So, you know, he was at the Trump Tower meeting in June 2016 with Donald Trump Jr. Um, He met with Russian officials during the transition and during the campaign. And then he also was copying on all these emails about WikiLeaks and Hillary Clinton's emails and things of that nature. So he's really kind of been a character who has emerged in a lot of those key moments during the Russia investigation. But then you also have him around when Donald Trump, for instance, fired James Comey. Jared Kushner was behind that idea and said, yeah, this is a really great idea. Let's fire the FBI director, which obviously led to the obstruction of justice probe. So he's kind of very much a key figure in a broader, in the broader Mueller investigation. But you tie that in with potential concerns about financing and money. And that might be where you could see charges surface that really sort of play into these other aspects of the investigation as well. So is Jared, I mean, when you tell me all these stories about, about Jared and him being in the room and him being on the email threads with the Russians and the, and, oh, the hacked emails, or, or, uh, you know, him making these deals, I mean, first of all, no one should ever buy a building that has 666 in it. Right. But <clears throat> putting that choice. aside, like, <laughs> it's just a poor choice. But um, is he, uh, you know, a fucking idiot or is, is he, I mean, I don't, like, can you explain what's going on here? Is he... He can't be that dumb. Um, he, uh, I mean, I've met his brother. His brother's a really sweet, smart guy. Um, I can't imagine that Jared, is, is he just too busy to think these things through? Like, what's going on with this kid? I think it's, I really think, well, one, he's probably not as smart as he thinks he is. So tripping over your own hubris is, you know, a quick way to fail. Um, and I think that's very much at play here. But I also think, you know, here's somebody who grew up in this life in, well, he was in New Jersey, I believe, but, you know, kind of in this New York City world where his family has this very wealthy real estate company. Um, he's rubbing elbows with Rupert Murdoch and all these kind of big names in the New York City scene. And I think, you know, if you grow up in that environment, he probably thinks that he has more influence and like a better understanding of power than he actually does. Because there's a difference between, you know, being power adjacent and actually having power yourself and understanding how to wield that. And I think Jared Kushner's problem is that he's been around power his entire life, but has no sense of how to actually use it and how to lead and how to make these kind of major decisions. I think anybody, I think a 12-year-old, you know, could say that, Maybe don't fire the FBI director. I don't know. It just seems like he's made some decisions that he thinks are good but are clearly, you know, have backfired in these very, very major ways. 
it's just a false sense of confidence, you know? Um, <clears throat> so do you think that the Mueller investigation is going to catch up to him? I mean, is it, do, I guess there's two questions here. One is, will Mueller, um, Mueller, however you say, I don't know how to say anyone's name because all I do is read them. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people I'm don't go with, read, so you have that going for you. Yeah, uh, I'm going to go with Mueller because I like to say Mueller, Mueller, Mueller. Um, is, is Mueller's investigation going to catch up to Jared? And if it does, which I've heard people say before that it could, if it does, does, does Trump pull the plug before, before his son-in-law goes to jail? So, or at I, least gets charged. Yeah, so I guess that's the, that's the ultimate question, right? Um, so I find it very hard to imagine a conclusion to the Mueller proof that doesn't at some point at least sweep Jared Kushner into it. So I think he spent two hours maybe with Mueller's team um, at last year discussing it, and I'm sure that you know they're going to revisit it. You look at somebody like Steve Bannon, who spent 20 hours with investigators last week, and Jared Kushner probably has a lot more to say than Steve Bannon, especially considering that, keep in mind that Steve Bannon you know, was a late addition to the Trump campaign uh, before the election. So I think it's... It's very hard to imagine a conclusion without Jared Kushner in some way kind of getting wrapped into it. Whether that would amount to charges, it's, you know, I don't, I, it's tough for me to say. Um, but he has been present in a lot of kind of these key moments. But back to this idea, like, does Trump pull the plug? That's what you wonder, right? There are a lot of people kind of calling for pardons for Mike Flynn, who is obviously very close to Trump and a top surrogate and a close friend and all that. Um, but you do kind of wonder if Trump is holding his fire and kind of keeping his powder dry to pardon other people who are actually very close to him. And of course, you know, the number one currency in Trump world is loyalty, which Mike Flynn has shown in spades. But, well, I guess not not now that he's cooperating with Mueller. But, um but what trumps that, if, huh, sorry, pun not intended, but what sort of trumps that <laughs> is actually being, you know, a member of Donald Trump's family. Like it goes family and then it goes loyalty. So maybe he is just kind of keeping his powder dry for in, in the event that other charges might surface, you know, for members of his family, whether it's Ivanka, whether it's, you know, Donald Trump Jr. or Jared Kushner. Uh, and I think that's kind of a key question. And I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if, if we ever got to that point in the investigation, I believe he would absolutely use his pardon power. Um, and, and if he uses pardon power, there's a pretty good chance it doesn't necessarily change anything for the voters that, that voted for him because they think the whole Russia thing is a, is a fake news, you know, left-wing liberal media elite thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. But so, so, so there's the, no... Yeah. There is this interesting kind of side note um, in terms of his pardon powers. So they're not – he's not like omnipotent in who he can pardon. So it can only be for federal crimes. So yeah. what gets interesting when you look at, you know, real estate – um, and, you know, potential charges that might surface in those is those can be prosecuted, for instance, at like a New York state level, like say Eric Schneiderman went after something related to the Kushner company and brought charges like f as a New York AG, that wouldn't fall under Donald Trump's pardon power. So it's kind of like there's this other side of it, too, where even though Donald Trump is president and he has this power, um, there could be kind of these um, caveats to to where it works and where it doesn't. And I think if you look at, you know, the real estate stuff, that's kind of an interesting space to, to watch in terms of, you know, where the pardons work and where the pardons don't. And that could be a way to also, you know, force cooperation.
I've heard from people that um, uh, uh, that the investigation <clears throat> is is really making a concerted effort to focus on state level crime, so mm-hmm. that if they do have to, when they do finally, you know, get someone who is close to Trump, that, that there's nothing that Trump can do. Uh, and it would right. be interesting to see if Trump what he would do. Would he? Would he? Would he destroy his presidency for his son-in-law? Would he say, "Hey, sorry, buddy, we'll we'll uh, see you in a couple of years when you when you get out"? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so, um, s- s- staying on Trump here for a minute, you have written about um, uh, Michael Cohen uh, and Stormy Daniels, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the, our beloved porn star. So it, it seems that that this is all true, you know. Cohen's come out there and said that he paid her. Um, uh, why has this not had a bigger effect on uh, the conversation around Trump? I mean, we, you know, I get that. I get that the Republicans who support Trump and Republicans who support Republicans in general um, don't want to lose their party uh, and, and their seats in, in the Senate mm-hmm. or wherever. But they, and, but they, they, I do believe that a lot of them are, are Christian and that they are, mm-hmm. that they are religious and that part of the reason that they are, they make the decisions and vote the way they do is based on those beliefs. Why is it that they don't care when these, I, when these things come into their own backyard? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it comes back to, I, I forget uh, who it was that made the statement, but some evangelical leaders, they basically said Trump gets a mulligan on all of that and, you know, that his history doesn't matter because to them, it doesn't, you know, the actions of Donald Trump, who's clearly, you know, imperfect if you look at him through a religious lens, especially in terms of, you know, infidelity and things of that nature, um, He's he doesn't he doesn't do well if you're looking at that scorecard. But the thing that they care about is you look across the judiciary and all these federal judgeships that he's filling with people who are gonna you know fight against abortions and all you know Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court and these decisions and these uh, sort of how he's used his power to more broadly shape. Uh, a lot of these issues, that matters more to them than, you know, whether Donald Trump had an affair with Stormy Daniels, because that has a lasting impact, whereas, you know, they couldn't give a shit about his marriage with Melania. What they care about is, you know, knocking down Roe v. Wade. And so they're they're totally fine with uh, paying a hooker $130,000, or is it not even a hooker? Is she a hooker? I don't... She's not a hooker. So She's paying paying a woman, <laughs> yeah, uh, um, one hundred thirty thousand uh, dollars, a stripper. She was a stripper, right? Um, porn star and porn stripper. Star. No, she has porn her. Stripper. She has her um, um, kind of tour so going on now. They're totally fine paying a porn star and stripper one hundred thirty grand uh, if it means overturning Roe versus Wade. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, uh, okay, so why is it though that other politicians have seen their um, uh, their, you know, they've lost, they've lost their, they've been kicked out of, of, of their seats. They've been, you know, I mean, look at, look at what happened to John Edwards. Um, mm-hmm. uh, is it just Trump that gets away with it? No one else or do other people get this mulligan too? Well, I think, I think you're in a different position, obviously, as, as president. And it does really come down to that Supreme Court issue. But I do think, you know, Donald Trump, um, 
there's a reason, you know, the nickname like Teflon Don um, kind of came into being. And I do think that he's viewed through a different lens. But I also think, you know, right now when you're looking at the Republican Party, I spoke with a Republican strategist about about two weeks ago and I asked that, you know, because originally Donald Trump's, you know, came into office and you saw you saw a Republican-led Congress vote in this sanctions bill, um, the Russian sanctions bill, that really sort of tied the president's hands. And then, you know, there were a lot of talk about, there was a lot of talk about introducing bills that would protect Robert Mueller from being fired. And then you kind of saw that change and you saw people, you know, taking a step back on anything that, you know, kind of seemed to go against Trump. And a Republican strategist I spoke with, he gave me three reasons as to like why people are cozying up to Donald Trump now. And you're not really seeing Republicans make hay over a lot of these issues that traditionally would, you know, they would make hay over. So the first one was um, Donald Trump uh, is the most republic is the most popular Republican politician right now in America. So there's very much the fear of this 35%. So the Trump base and the fact that if you go against Trump, uh, these people can turn against you. And while you can't win win elections with the Trump base alone, you also can't win without them if you're a Republican. So that's obviously huge, sort of the wrath of the the Trump base in terms of these folks who are seeking re-election in the future. Then... um, the other thing he said is sort of this idea that if there is a blue wave coming, uh, Republicans are kind of racing to the finish. So they have control right now. They're going to ignore kind of all the noise and everything going on to really just pass as much legislation as they can until 2018 and until they might lose the majority in you know the House, if not the Senate. So sort of that idea. But then there's also this question of uh, nobody knows where the party's going, right? So Donald Trump yeah. doesn't, you know, he doesn't fall under the typical categories of republicanism. So there's a question as to whether Trump and his sort of like populist nationalist uh, bent, if that's just an anomaly, because Donald Trump is a celebrity with 100% name recognition who, you know, uh, speaks his mind in a way that other politicians haven't in the past and sort of, you know, whether this is just a moment in time that's kind of led by Donald Trump and um, that, you know, the populist nationalist movement isn't here to stay. Or if it really is and that, you know, the traditional Republican ways are gone and that they're over. So I think right now um, the way the the strategist I spoke with put it to me is people are kind of just like waiting to figure out whether this Trump thing is a phase or if – you know, the tides are really changing and that populist nationalism is really the future of the GOP, which I think is sort of, you look at those three reasons combined and it kind of makes sense as to why, you know, Republicans are quiet and not doing anything and sort of, you know, allowing this orange volcano to to take over everything. The orange volcano, I like that. Um, <laughs> do, do you think, just going back to that second point for a second, do you think that this is, that there will be a blue wave? Yeah, well, so I actually um, spoke with some folks uh, and kind of looking at these at these special elections. So since Trump took office, I think it's the total uh, was like thirty seven state legislative seats have or seats have been flipped from from red to blue since since he took over. But also the way that one one person described it to me is. You should never look at a single special election and say, oh, you know, because because Democrats flipped this weird seat that's in this very traditionally red district in Arkansas or wherever it is to blue, that it means that a blue wave is coming, but that 
the idea that each one of these is a canary in a coal mine and that, you know, you have to look at them as a whole. So it's like this broader trend where it's seen, you know, it's not just this one seat in Arkansas or Oklahoma or Florida or wherever it is, but it's, you know, all these little seats littered across the country where you're seeing these trends and you're seeing these flips, um, flips occur and that that will kind of, you know, possibly portend a blue wave. And people I spoke with really think that it's coming and that, you know, holding on to the House will be incredibly different, difficult. And, um, you know, for Republicans, that keeping the Senate under control isn't a foregone conclusion. But one, one person, and I think this is actually a really important point to make um, as we discuss this, like, you know, you see these special elections and you see people write about them and they're just like, oh man, like 50 point swing relative to like what Trump, um, won this district by in, in 2016. And one strategist who I spoke with, he was like, you can't do that. Like you can't compare an off the rack Republican to Donald Trump because no matter, you know, kind of back to this idea that he's an anomaly, Trump is Trump and his election against Hillary Clinton was very unique in that, you know, both of them were incredibly unpopular candidates. So looking at the margins in these districts, in 2016 is not a good comparison for these special elections that we're seeing. And that the real number to actually look at um, when you're kind of seeing and talking about this idea of a blue ray wave is actually like the Romney-Obama numbers, because those are, you know, Romney is much more similar to a traditional Republican that's going to be running in these states, you know, that isn't Donald Trump, that isn't a celebrity. Um, but when you kind of dial in and you look at these special elections and you compare them relative to like the Romney numbers, a lot of them are still winning um, by pretty substantial or swinging the districts by a pretty substantial margin. Um, so a lot of people definitely kind of think that's coming. The, you know, the wave do, do, size matters. I, we'll see, I guess. So, it's, so it could be a – there, there will be a blue wave. It's just un, – it's unclear if it will be a, a right. like a, a two-foot one or a, or a, a tsunami uh, essentially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've written uh, a, a lot about um, what would go catastrophically wrong if there was a if somehow you know Trump was either impeached or left or something, and we had a, a we had a, a President Pence. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in your mind, uh, would Pence be worse than Trump? Well, I think you have to look at Pence from like a few angles. I think if you know. Well, one, Mike Pence, the way people view Mike Pence is through the lens of Donald Trump. So they see him and they're like, oh, what a great alternative. Like, here's somebody who's not tweeting wild things in the middle of the night and kind of going off the the handle every other day. Here's a guy who, you know, is predictable and kind of like we understand what he's about, you know, that he – he describes himself as a Christian, a conservative, and a Republican in that order. So it's like you kind of get his ideology and you get what he's about. And, you know, you look at Mike Pence and you – Mike Pence, no matter how much you disagree with him, you understand that he actually believes these things, no matter how crazy they might seem to you. But with Donald Trump, and we've kind of touched on this throughout the podcast, like does he believe in anything, which I think introduces this sort of unpredictability factor that Mike Pence doesn't have. So – then when you're looking kind of at a, through a foreign policy perspective, yeah, maybe I would rather have Mike Pence talking to the North Koreans and, you know, know that he's not going to call Kim Jong-un a little rocket man on Twitter. Like, well, that he, makes me he, feel better. He, but he also, I mean, come on, look at the way he acted at the at the Olympics where he, uh, you know, he spent, he spent a year complaining about NFL players taking a knee. And then during the Olympics, when the Koreans came out, he, he sat down when everyone stood. I mean, isn't he 
you know, just as bombastically annoying and uh, dangerous or, or is he, is, is he less so? I think, so here's the thing with Mike Pence is I think he's doing those things because at the end of the day, the one thing that he has proven to be more than anything else is a loyal soldier to Trump. Like he is serving Donald Trump 100% and knows that the best way to do that would be, you know, to be shitty to the Koreans at the Olympics, you know, and sort of you have to view it through Mike Pence is doing everything to serve Donald Trump and kind of, you know, be viewed as this like staunch sidekick by the Trump base, you know, if he ever chooses to run in the future. So I think like just as a person, though, he's definitely not as bombastic. But, you know, you look at his actions and yeah, that was childish and yeah, that was immature. And did it achieve anything? Um, And so I think through that lens, you know, you just the unpredictability factor, I think, is huge kind of in terms of foreign policy and um, like understanding how a president would approach that. That said, Mike Pence has an absolute and had an absolutely terrible record as governor of Indiana. And people don't really think about that. Like, the Oh, re- he was diabolical. He was absolutely he was, I mean, terrible. Diabolical, he, yeah. Yeah, it was, he He never, he likely wouldn't have been reelected again, or he would have had an incredibly difficult slog to reelection. Um, he had middling approval ratings. He messed up, he seriously messed up in terms of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act there. He had an HIV epi- like outbreak in his state because he refused to have a needle-sharing program. There was a lead pro- poisoning crisis kind of not nearly at the level of Flint, but like very severe in his state while he was there. He was an absolutely terrible governor, and people don't really realize that. When Donald Trump picked Mike Pence to be his running mate, Mike Pence needed... Donald Trump just as much as Donald Trump needed Mike Pence to win the evangelicals. So I think the idea that Mike Pence will be a great leader and a great president is completely misguided when you kind of look at him beyond, like, maybe things might be a little better on on the foreign policy front. All right. So we are, we're going to wind down here. Um, and, uh, um, I am determined before this podcast is over to find something positive to talk about, but we, before we get to something positive, let's just, let's just wrap up with some John Kelly, not our editor, John Kelly, the guy in the white house who seems to hate immigrants just as much as Donald (laughs) Trump does. Um, there are stories this week that, uh, we've reported, uh, that others have been reporting that, uh, there, there's a war going on in the White House with John Kelly and, and Jared Kushner and, and, and others even uh, that, that Mr. Mr. Donald, Mr. what do we call him, Orange Volcano, is, is <laughs> kind of getting a little fed up with John Kelly. Um, is John Kelly uh, going to make it through this or is he, uh, he going to be tossed out with, you know, Reince and Bannon and all of those other, you know, folks that are now... Uh, uh, trying to find good jobs elsewhere. Well, I think kind of the key looking at that is you, you look at this security clearance issue that kind of came about from, from the Rob Porter scandal, and uh, there's kind of this sense that, you know, Jared Kushner, who has had an interim security clearance for over a year, kind of has a bullseye on his back in terms of this policy change. Um, and when you look at the track record of anybody in the West Wing who has gone to war with Jared and Ivanka, uh, they've never done well. <laughs> uh, Steve Bannon, <laughs> obviously, uh, yeah. Reince, um So you kind of like see that and it's 
even, you know, Sean Spicer to a degree as well. It's like they don't have a great track record. So I wouldn't want to go to war um, with either of them because, again, this idea that family comes first in Trump world. Um, but there is also, and our colleague Gabe Sherman made this point in his piece about the John Kelly, this sort of imminent John Kelly, Jared Kushner war, that ultimately this decision can be decided by the president. He can choose to allow, like, you know, give somebody clear, classified clearance. Um, that's just within within his powers. But sort of this idea that if John Kelly is ousted over this issue or Donald Trump chooses to sort of go against John Kelly's wishes and go against this policy and give his son-in-law and daughter security clearances, just like the sheer optics of that, if Kelly's ousted over the issue, are so bad and just like so nepotistic in nature that Kelly would kind of win on his way out the door to a degree, But, but how, do, how does he win? I mean, it's it seems like nothing... The optics. I mean, this is the thing that I'm always amazed about is that 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 Trump acquiesces to anything because it seems like right. you know if you go back to the statement from from before he was even remotely close to elected when he said you know I I could do anything and these people will love me I could I could go onto Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and they'd still vote for me. It seems that that I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, and I would love to know if there's one thing that he could do, but it it seems there is nothing that he can do. That would get him. Uh, that would get his base to to, to turn against him, and uh, and so why does he even give in to any of it? I mean, it just doesn't seem. It what what does he care? Mm-hmm. Well, I think. Well, one, you're absolutely right, <laughs> um, but I also you do have to keep in mind that this is all happening and that these issues have kind of come to bear while Republicans control both houses of Congress as well. So you look at his base and this idea of his base, and we kind of touched on this, you know, that 35% or uh, whatever it is, like these Republicans can't win without it, but they can't win with it alone. And if the House changes and, you know, there's depressed turnout on the Republican side and Democrats come out in spades and independents are all souring on Trump and sort of these actions that he's taking, like that's going to ultimately result in, you know, Democrats taking over the House and possibly the Senate, you know. And so once that happens, all he's doing is just pissing people off. And it's just the more he takes and the more he kind of like takes power, the more likely that his power is going to be limited in the future when the Republicans lose um, total control of Congress. So I think that's sort of like this interesting idea is like, yeah, while right now he might be able to get away with it, once those tides change as a result of some of these actions in terms of, you know, turnout and independent voters and what they do and, you know, massive turnout on the Democrat side, that'll change over time. And all he'll really achieve in doing so is like eventually kind of limiting the power of the presidency as Congress kind of fights back once, you know, once the power changes hands, if it does, of course. Um, all right. So uh, I am determined to end on a positive note here. Uh, <laughs> do you have any? Oh, man. <laughs> positive note. I don't, I don't think so. It's been, it's been a dark. It's been a dark week. Two it years? really, it's, it's been a dark two couple of years, but it, yeah. well, I think, okay. I think let's, <laughs> let's go out, let's go out on the fact that, um, I, here's what I believe and correct me if I'm wrong. And I'd love to get your viewpoint on this mm-hmm. is, um, so I, uh, about, uh, I think it was, it was New Year's. Um, I had, uh, John Kelly, not 
not the guy in the White House who we just discussed, but our editor, mm-hmm. um, Vandy Fair at The Hive, um, we, we talked about predictions um, for this year and um, for 2018. And one of the questions I asked him, I said, you know, if you look back, it's almost like the uh, 2016 was the uh, Black Lives Matter movement. 2017 was was the Me Too movement. Um, all hashtags, of course. And I I said, what do you think the 2018 will be? Uh, and he he didn't know, and I didn't know. We had a few a few suggestions, mm-hmm. but it, but am I am I being too optimistic in thinking that it will be the Never Again movement? No, I, I think you are being rightfully optimistic or cautiously optimistic. I guess it's like a good way to be with that right now because I do think, you know, if if there's one lesson that has kind of been learned over the last year, year and a half or so, it's that voting really does matter and that an issue, you know, like gun control, a lot of that kind of comes from local, state, uh, and then obviously national elections. So I think one thing people have really learned is that voting matters and that their votes matter. And I think, you know, you look at something like the Never Again movement, and ultimately, you know, right now you look at Congress and it's Republican-controlled, which means, you know, largely it's also controlled by the NRA. But people come out and vote and they can change that and they can make a difference at the state, local, and national level and kind of change those laws. And I think right now we're at a point where voting matters more than ever. And I think you look at something like the Never Again movement, which right now, you know, people might say, oh, it's a phase, it's going to go away, it's going to fade. But if the momentum continues and that that becomes a voting issue, if gun control in the next election really, really is a driver for why people are going to the polls as a result of kind of, you know, these very um, empowering but tragic stories that these high school students are sharing, then look at the change that that makes. You know, your vote matters, but also the sort of really compelling messages that we're seeing from these students, I think will drive people to the polls and will drive them to vote. And, you know, it might take some time, but that's sort of how you'll actually see legislation um, and laws change. Well, I think that you're completely right. I, um, I'll, I'll end with a little story. Uh, um, I won't say who this person is, but I have a family member who uh, I, I actually lived in. I lived in Broward County for many years in Florida, in mm-hmm. uh, where Marjorie Stoneman Douglas was. I went to school there, and um, <clears throat> I had a, a family member who um, always said, "Oh, my vote doesn't count. It's stupid. It, it doesn't doesn't mean anything." And in 2000, um, this family member didn't vote, and. Uh, and of course, this is the Bush Gore uh, election, and um, uh, and Bush ended up winning, uh, and arguably ended up winning by, you know, there are some estimates that say 537 votes, and some that say as low as 245. There was a Harvard study that that, that said that, mm-hmm. um, uh, and uh, and. I always talk to this person and say, you know, after that moment, I said, you know, do you realize now that your vote counts? And and it really came down to 245 people uh, uh, that that changed the outcome of this country. Uh, um, and I think that, you know, the fact that, you know, I've said this before and I'll say it again a million times, but 91 mm-hmm. million eligible voters did not vote in this last election. Uh, and I think if, if people start to realize that their vote can count, um, then maybe maybe this will all change. Yeah, can I can I tell a similar story? Uh, yeah, a very I love stories. One? Tell us stories. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So 2008, I was a freshman in college, 18 years old, super excited to vote, right? Um, but I was at school, so I was out of state, and I had to have an absentee ballot obviously sent to me. So 
Turns out my absentee ballot arrives the day of the election. But being 18 and just jazzed, you know, to participate in democracy, I was just like, you know, like, I'm going to absolutely fill this out anyway, this ballot. Like, I know it's not going to count. Like, I know it won't really matter um, because it literally arrived the day of the election. Um, but so I filled it out anyway. And it turned out, so again, I'm from Minnesota. Um, so it turned out that 2008 was the year that Al Franken's race against um, Norm Coleman came down to absentee ballots that came in out of state after the actual election. So originally he was trailing Coleman by a couple hundred votes, a recount occurred, and then it ended up he won by a 220 vote or 220, 225 vote margin. So for me, my vote actually mattered, even though I was absolutely convinced the day of the election that it wouldn't. And it really came down to those couple hundred people and maybe other college students like me who, you know, just voted to vote out of like the sheer symbolism of it. But that was pretty, that was an exciting moment for me. See, but, your yeah. votes do count. Yeah. So that's a very um, personal story. <laughs> no, it's great. It's all, it's so great to hear these stories because everyone thinks that their votes don't count, but in the reality is that they they absolutely do. Um, so uh, as as we get closer to 2018, I'm sure there will be lots of uh, people telling stories like this. So this, this is really great. Abigail, Tracy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, I uh, really appreciate it. This has all been truly fascinating. Yeah, um, thanks for having me, th- Nick. Thank you so much. This is Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Hey, Nick, so after listening to that, I, I actually... What do you think? Does Trump believe in anything? You know, I actually don't think Trump believes in anything. I think that, um, you know, it, there, there is a world, there's an alter, alternate universe out there where um, uh, the orange volcano uh, decided to run <laughs> on the Republican ticket or on the Democratic, sorry, on the Democratic or Reform ticket or, or something like that and won, you know, let's just give him that. And that he was out there fighting against gun control and going up against Republicans uh, and um, and all those things. And I think it just so happens that uh, that we we were unlucky that he decided to run as a Republican this time and at the time that he actually won. I mean, he tried to run. Uh, he talked about running in eighty eight, in ninety six, two thousand, two thousand two for governor, two thousand four. Um, uh, so you know, I don't believe he believes in anything except his last name, which is Trump. I know. It, what it's about true. you? I, I, I admit that I don't actually think that Donald Trump, who has a 10-year-old son, believes that like PE teachers should be armed. Um, uh, and, and by the commutative property of, of, of that, I sort of don't believe that he believes in anything. I'm, I'm with you. The, the only place where I do think he has um, forceful notions uh, um, is regarding himself and, and his family member, in which uh, family members, in, in which case um, uh, he seems to to believe many things and seems to be willing to um, to uh, to circumnavigate various policies and who knows maybe even legal issues. And that's you know we talked about this with Abby, but but really that's what the the future is pinned on. That's what our our next six to nine to eighteen months are all about. Did um, did Trump? willingly manipulate rules did he have nothing to do with with potential manipulation of rules and did he do it in his own self-interest or did he was he blithely unaware of anything that may have happened um i think we are going to find out if if trump does believe in things beyond the, the power of his own ego well i um <clears throat> uh i'm excited uh i know i always end up 
you know, down a dark rabbit hole somewhere uh, with death and destruction. But I'm, I'm excited that these, um, and I'm proud. Uh, I'm truly actually really proud to be, uh, I've never said that I've ever been proud of anything from Florida before, but I'm <laughs> proud this week to say that I went to school there and at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas and that these kids, um, I, you know, I think are going to, are going to have some sort of impact. I don't know what it is, uh, but, you know, I really truly do believe they are. I, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor this week, John. Um, mm. We're going to wrap up here. And do you want to do the thanks with me? Gee, Nick, I'd love to. All right. So here, here's how it goes. I, I say thanks to my guest, Abigail Tracy, and of course, you, John Kelly. Oh, gee, Nick, you, Nick you're so welcome. So if people enjoyed this conversation, where can they listen and subscribe? They can listen to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton to see other great episodes, and they can go on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere they get their podcasts. And what is it that they should do when they're there? They should leave a review that says what, John? How great this is, how charming you are, how funny I am, how smart Abby is, um, something along the lines of that. And I should note too, Nick, another handy way to listen to this podcast is to go to www.vfhive.com. That's www.vfhive.com. That's the hive. Did you say that's at vfhive.com? That was www.vfhive.com. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to our sponsor, Casper. I am about to go and buy one of their yummy mattresses right now and really see if you know what you said is true. I do believe you completely. Um, please support them in the same way you support this podcast. I will see you all next week. <laughs>